Welcome to The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at technologies reshaping of our lives and particularly the power of government and companies. My name is Gus Hossein and I'm the Executive Director of Privacy International. And today I'm talking to two of my colleagues, Alex and Eden. Hi, my name is Alex. I'm Director of Strategy at PI. And I'm Eden. I'm Advocacy Director at PI. So as you can tell by the quality of the audio, like much of the world in April 2020, we are all working slightly differently. And so this recording quality may not be quite what you're accustomed to. So we apologize and we hope that we'll be back in our studio as we do this for the future sessions. In this podcast, we're going to be looking at the global response to COVID-19. At PI, we're seeing a wide variety of government and companies' responses, but generally they hinge around the vast collection of data, the vast sharing of data, and the removal of all the safeguards, essentially the backsliding of all the safeguards that exist in liberal democracies and allowing for a dramatic, or as my colleague Edwin would put it, a power grab by governments and companies across the world. And so I'm so grateful to be joined today by Edin and Alex as they discuss what they've been seeing in this response. First, I want to invite Edin to discuss some of the issues that he's seeing. Now, just to give you some background, Edin, for a number of years now, has led our advocacy, particularly around surveillance and the surveillance industry. And so I'm dying to hear his insights into what's going on now. Yes. So fortunately, we've had the privilege of sitting around mostly on our couches and being able to work from home over the last few weeks. And so with doing that, we spent a bunch of time looking into some of the measures that we've seen globally, which range from things which are generally quite effective and might be quite useful to things that just are pure reckless and badly designed, to things that I think are essentially outright power grabs. So measures by governments that are essentially being used to capitalize on this crisis in a way to further their own power. It's also proven to be an opportunity for companies which range from surveillance companies, social media, big tech companies, to use this crisis as an opportunity either to launder their reputations or to capitalize on for profit. So I think most of the measures we're seeing fall into one of those three buckets. And taken together, I think the laws and the technology which we're seeing being tested and rolled out is truly unprecedented in terms of its global scale. So there's not one corner of the globe where we're not seeing something being tested or rolled out uh, for this. I would say even, I mean, I'm not an old codger like you, Gus, but surely this far exceeds the response we saw in the backlash to September 11th also. Yeah, thank you for reminding me of the <laughs> fact that I was working in the post 9-11 environment. And it is interesting that I think first the societal response post 9-11 wasn't as fear driven. You know, like as much as people were terrified of terrorists, they knew they weren't everywhere. And now the fear of your next door neighbor, the fear of the people walking down the street, the fear all around us of, of foreigners coming from any country, you know, if only it had stopped with China, and then it moved on to Italy, then it moved on. And so all of a sudden, the irrational fear that we all have, it's far greater than the post 9-11 environment. And as you rightly indicate, the surveillance industry was very, very small compared to what it is now. And there's so many companies who are so well known that 
as you say, probably want to launder their reputation that have been sullied over recent years as we've had a much more cynical and skeptical approach from the public when it comes to surveillance technologies up until now. Totally. I mean, just on that, for example, for some context, we've been sharing around a bunch of articles around the office, most of which are absolutely geeky as anything. But one particular section that stuck out was from this Biometrics Industry magazine, and they had a quote, and I'll just repeat the quote verbatim. In the same way that 9-11 created 20 years of security innovation around identity, the corona crisis pandemic will spur decades of security innovation around health status. And I think that's something that we're going to be seeing, and that's one of the long-term effects of this. While we're so interested and concentrated on the short-term effects, that's going to be one of the long-term things that we're going to be seeing as a result of this. Demoralizing, it, and I have to say, because after 9-11, we had about five years of government ministers and policymakers and surveillance industry folks who would stand up at conferences or in their press releases or in any quote they would give, and they would always start with, in the aftermath of 9-11, or now that we've seen the rise of the global war on terror. And fortunately, around 2009, 2010, finally that statement started to die off. And now you're essentially saying that for the next 10 years, we're gonna have the, well, in the aftermath of the COVID-19 crisis, we're gonna see the need for dot, dot, dot. This is just, we've seen this play before, and it doesn't end particularly well. Yeah, I think that's right. So, I mean, looking forward, what is it they mean when they're talking about identity status and health status? Like, what kind of technologies are they looking at? Like, I've seen adverts for things like touchless biometrics. So, for example, if you get to a stage going forward where some people are going to be allowed out onto public spaces or going to be allowed back to work, depending on their health status, we're going to get to a point where people are going to have to prove that they're one of those people. And how do you do that? Well, the surveillance industry has a solution, and that would be for them and their technologies to be installed in public spaces to scan people, to use technologies such as facial biometrics, so face surveillance, to identify whether that person has the right to be in a public space or to go to work based on their actual health status. So is that the kind of technologies that we'd be looking at or anything else? That sounds about right. And essentially, people's health data are now going to be part of their dossiers. And this is a good time to bring in our colleague, Alex, because while we can focus on the ridiculous claims and the dangerous promises being made by governments and the surveillance industry, it's important to remember how this is going to play out across the world. And Alex has previously led our work with partners across the world, but now she's in charge of our work on safeguarding people's dignity. And I'm curious, Alex, how do you see this playing out? It's interesting in the responses to COVID-19 to reflect on different areas of our work. So it's not just surveillance, it's not just digital identity or access to healthcare or communities at risk. COVID-19 and the measures that we're seeing are bringing all of those topics together, actually. And something I was talking about earlier with some colleagues is how we're worried that possibly, as was highlighted by Virginia Eubanks in her book on automating inequality, that after every mass social crisis being a surge in unemployment or in drastic government policies around social rights, that there has been an increase and an expansion of different measures to control who can access public services and the circumstances for that. And we were wondering whether actually we're going to see something similar with COVID-19. So in terms of things that we've been seeing, one particular concern that's emerging is how some of the proposals 
are building on existing systems that have been of concerns for privacy advocates and human rights advocates for a long time. And just to mention things we've seen, for example, you know, Singapore at the beginning was hailed as being very effective and efficient in its response, but that's also due to the governance culture, which is very strict, robust, and requires a lot of intense constant surveillance and control of populations. Or in Thailand, where we're seeing mandatory SIM card registration, when an individual purchases a new SIM card, they have to provide some form of identity, which then allows um, for the company to connect that person's identity with, for example, their mobile usage. Uh, and that sort of information is then used by law enforcement, but others uh, for tracking and identification. And the same thing with facial recognition systems, that were already in place and are now being connected with some of the COVID-19 measures, for example, in, in China and Russia. And so for moving forward, that's definitely something that we need to be keeping an eye on is not only are what are the new message, but how our existing threats that individuals were already facing in a non-crisis situations have been heightened as a result of the current situation. That point about, oh, we all thought Singapore had done such a great job. This is one of the things that's actually driving me a little nuts in both the media conversation, but also in our daily lives, apart from all the conversations I have with my colleagues. When I'm speaking to other people, they're all like, depending on what stage they are in the world as to, you know, where's the virus when it comes to their daily lives. At first, people often say, oh, but look at China. China did such a great job responding to it. Why can't we be more like China? Then it moved on to Singapore. Why can't we be more like Singapore? Then it moved on to Taiwan. And now the latest craze, I think it's Thailand. Why can't we be more like Thailand? And what they're forgetting, apart from the ridiculous surveillance measures that have been introduced, they're forgetting that these societies have very severe problems that are likely to have been exacerbated along the way. But we outside who are fearful of what our future looks like just want our government to respond like what those other countries did because they seem like successes, but they're not necessarily successes. And as we've seen, the virus has gone back up in China to some degree, and Singapore continues to struggle in so many ways. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I think that's definitely something that we're, we're trying to take into account is also how the public is responding to some of the measures and some of the advocacy that we've been doing is really to try and, and put forward more of a narrative around some of the measures needing to be based on evidence being provided by healthcare professionals and public health professionals in terms of what is really the information that they need at this point to make informed decisions um, and what are the measures that are actually going to be useful one of the examples that emerged quite early on was to start using mobile phone data and location data. And actually what is emerging, for example, in, in Israel was that public medical professionals were saying, actually, we don't need that sort of information right now because if the measures are enforced when it comes to the quarantine or self-isolation, everyone should be at home. And it would be really disproportionate to be using this sort of measure to be only tracking the few that might not be respecting those enforcement measures. So there's something that we, we've noticed as well and that we've tried to address and challenge to some extent is getting more transparency in terms of the basis on which some of the measures are being decided, because that's key to when it comes to public trust. Um, as Edin was saying, a lot of the measures being proposed are effective and will help to tackle the spread of the virus. But unless more information is shared, people will just lose trust even in those measures that are necessary and proportionate. So that's definitely something I think that authorities have to keep in mind is at this 
key moment, particularly in this crisis situation, they need to be even more transparent than ever before, because if not, they're going to lose the public trust um, and that could lead to even more severe consequences. I think the example that Alex brings up of Israel is a really good one because those medics, they said that this was not only a distraction, a distraction from things like getting personal protective gear to the frontline staff or making sure that there's enough testing kits available, but actually it was counterproductive. So by quarantining people that you don't need to, you were also then taking out frontline staff who are actually needed in fighting the crisis. So that's like a real example of how this technological solutionism that's being implemented in countries without any evidence from the health experts or without any solicitation from them is actually leading to the opposite effect and is actually undermining the situation itself. Right now, we have this incredible moment where large amounts of people across the world would be incredibly trusting of a system that might be introduced for their betterment and for the betterment of people around them. Unfortunately, these initiatives are likely to be introduced by the same people who have built the world that we have it right now. And that was a world that we, as advocates who've been working in this field for a long time, we know that these these institutions did not deserve our trust. And so whether it's the Googles entering the frame or whether it is the the internal police of Israel, the Shin Bet getting involved, we do not trust these institutions because they have previously abused their powers. So we're asking what they would do differently. But just to use an example that's been circulating a lot in the UK, say two weeks ago, there was an app that had been developed where you could report your symptoms. And it was developed by some individual who was a researcher at Oxford. And before you know it, this link to upload your data here had been circulated across all of my social networks. And I swear, my social networks are not just privacy advocates. And so it was a very wide number of people who started to say, let's start uploading our data because people wanted something to do. They were highly trusting of just whatever somebody would come forward with. And in the end, this, this individual was just a researcher and he wasn't even doing a research project directly related to COVID, but had the infrastructure. And it wasn't very secure infrastructure. And then eventually that dissipated. And then not even two days later, another app was being circulated. And this time it was related to one of the London universities. And people were saying, oh, enter your data in this app. So clearly people want something. And they're not wrong to want something. It's just that if they want something, we give them something and then we show later that they should not have trusted it. I don't think we'll ever get these people back on side when it comes to trusting medical care and mm. tech and data and companies and researchers and, of course, government. And we've seen this in different settings, be it the development or humanitarian sector, when measures have to be taken in a kind of sense of urgency, we tend to forget some of the lessons learned. And I think COVID-19 and some of the measures that we're seeing are not considering some of the weaknesses, the vulnerabilities and some of the problems that have been highlighted for the last few years around be it apps or website tracking or vulnerabilities in you know low-cost devices or um, just different measures that have been put in place by governments. And I think having done quite a few media interviews over the last few weeks, we tend to be asked the same question over and over again. And these are things that we work on a non-crisis setting as well. And I think we need to tap into what we already know about what can be problematic, what are the risks, 
What are the threats? Who's most impacted? Because that's also key questions. The distribution and the enjoyment of some of the benefits of some of these measures will not be enjoyed by everyone equally. And so we need to build on those lessons learned and then start implementing them into the decisions that we're seeing made as part of the response to COVID-19. And just to give you an example, when it comes to a digital ID system, for example, a couple of days ago, the Jamaican government decided to fast track the creation and implementation of its national identification system, the NIDS, in order to be better prepared and have a structure, let's say, to give access to aid and to distribute benefits in the wake of COVID-19. And it's interesting because in this article and in this announcement, the government's not necessarily reflecting on the fact that not even a year ago, the Constitutional Court of Jamaica struck down the country's mandatory biometric national ID system and decided that it violated the constitutional right to privacy. And so I'm wondering, as part of this fast tracking process, you know, how are they reflecting on the court's judgment and, and how are they going to be proceeding with that? Because COVID-19 and the urgency in some of the decisions that are being made does not mean that, you know, this is a blank slate and they don't have to comply with any of their human rights obligations. And I think we're not having enough discussions around this lessons learned and how we can improve some of the measures being deployed. Alex, you're being a little bit generous, just going back to what Eden was raising about the post 9-11 environment. The reason why there was an onslaught of legislation after 9-11 wasn't that necessarily immediately governments were inventive. What they instead did is they went into their cupboards and their drawers and into their trunks and said, okay, what laws did we have a hard time getting through in the past? What can we introduce now in this moment of crisis? It's, it is pure opportunism. But I want to get back to Eden to go a little bit further than that, which is there's the opportunism, but there's also some just downright dangerous ideas. What are your favorites of those? I think the obvious example is the fact that we've now ended up in a situation where we have what is an effective dictatorship as a EU member state in Hungary uh, that's just taken the opportunity to essentially ensure that Orban becomes president for life. Um, on top of that, we've also seen states derogating from some human rights and then just companies that are usually associated with providing tools for governments to target journalists or activists. They're selling tools that are designed specifically for fighting this crisis. Are these companies, like as much as they might be reputation laundering to seem important at this moment in time, perhaps the world that they were hoping to build in a anti-terrorism world can in fact be built in a COVID world to essentially detain people without trial? And so whether it's the, the apps that we're talking about or the ID systems, aren't we talking essentially about managing the quarantining of people, managing the day-to-day -day freedom of people? People are just anxious for something to be done. So saying things like, okay, we must ensure that the government responds, but it must be lawful, necessary and proportionate, I don't think is going to cut at this time. I think we need to explain what proportionality is in terms of how it's actually applied. So proportionality isn't just a vague legal term that only legal experts know. It's something that means that the government should, in responding to this, use a tool that's the minimum necessary for achieving that aim. So for example, you could quarantine people very easily just by pointing a gun to their head. That would be an effective form of quarantine enforcement. But there's better ways of doing it, and there's less intrusive ways of doing it. And it comes down to ensuring that you do the least intrusive way possible. And I think, essentially, that also means that you have to 
ensure that there's proper cause and effect because we don't know if some of the tools that are being touted as solutions here are actually effective at all. They're just tools that have been tested. There's no way of knowing that they've actually been effective. We were involved in a briefing last week with the UK government where they were trying to explain how the healthcare service is approaching the problem on a tech basis. And essentially, there were three buckets of activities. The first was creating tools and data management systems that would essentially manage the resources of hospitals and the National Health Service. That is, where are the doctors? Where are the nurses? Where are the ventilators? Where are the patients? And just knowing where all that is, that's a huge data exercise that needs accelerating because of the urgency, but also the influx of patients. The second category is the managing of people's responses. That is, this is the the apps that we've seen to date, which is I'm not feeling well, so I'm going to use an app. I'm going to record that I'm not feeling well and send that to somebody. It might be some researcher or some university, or, or we hope it's instead our doctors and our nurses who would then get back to us with some kind of health response. And the third bucket is this, the next generation of apps that we're hearing about, which is about helping us to understand who we interact with. And there are a number of ideas. Some of them are based on location of telephone mass, so getting the data from telephone companies. Some of it's based on getting data from Bluetooth. So on your smartphone, your phone would always be detecting other phones around so that it can remember that four days ago, I interacted with Eden, and Eden has now reported himself as feeling unwell. Can I now be notified? So on top of that, Gus, I would also say we're seeing a bunch of apps and measures that are also used for quarantine enforcement. So the stage after contact tracing has been done, where you're trying to essentially make sure that somebody stays within the house or the region that they're supposed to be at. So you're definitely nailing it. And for me, this is the problem with the contact tracing apps. There's even some privacy-friendly ideas being circulated. Of, oh, this is a privacy-preserving version of keeping track of how all the people you're interacting with. But what all these apps developers who think they're developing something for good and all these people who think that they're developing something to help them identify whether or not they're feeling well, they don't understand that the ultimate use of this kind of app with the direction that this virus is taking and the global response is taking is that it will be for quarantining, which means right now it is, oh, tell me if I've interacted with Eden who's now feeling unwell, but in a few months time, it might very well be identify all the devices that have been around Gus's phone to ensure that he has not left his home. And that will all involve the leaking of the data to a centralized store, which right now they're designing out of their technology, but it's entirely easy and plausible. They'll have to design it back into their technologies because the technologies are on everybody's phones already. Definitely. And, you know, we've already seen some apps which explicitly do the quarantine enforcement. But like you say, these kind of more open privacy preserving apps And the risk is they might be based on some level of consent or even some form of anonymization at the moment. But what's to say that will remain that way down the line and governments won't repurpose it or eventually end up making it compulsory as the need comes. Exactly. And I'm not sure if people are looking enough into the future and understand how economically important it is for countries to get back functioning again. And there will be such an emphasis on 
moving as quickly as possible and identifying who was well and who was unwell so we can get the well people back to being economically active. And that might not be going back to the job that they were doing before as head of marketing of company X or uh, a librarian in uh, the local library, but it could instead be you shall pick apples before the apple season's over because we can't bring in migrants from elsewhere. And we're going to need to sort through vast amounts of people while we still enforce quarantines until more people can join the workforce. There isn't a pretty ending to these these very friendly apps at the moment. No, exactly. And, and especially, you know, depending on their architecture, they could be decentralized and have fairly solid anonymization processes. But quite likely the governments are going to want to centralize it and maintain control. And Alex, in our interactions with our partners across the world and seeing how their own governments are responding. Have we actually seen the degree to which they're further along the road and how the more problematic proposals that weren't necessarily being floated before are now? Across different countries, we are seeing similar initiatives. And like I mentioned earlier, one of the most common one was the use of mobile phone data. We're seeing in a couple of countries where they're using some less, let's say, high-tech uh, proposes as well. We've seen a few um, in Argentina, for example, at the very beginning of the outbreak, newspapers were publishing the names of people that had been infected. And so we're seeing some of those measures increasingly. And then going back to what I was saying earlier, in countries where it, there is more of a, let's say, authoritarian regime in place, they're going for much more extreme measures when it comes to the enforcement of some of the quarantine. Similarly to what Eden was saying, the president of the Philippines is basically given permission to law enforcement to shoot anyone who might be breaking the quarantine. So there might be some, you know, we are seeing some of the the tech solutions um, as well being proposed, but we're seeing some of the much more like non-digital ways as well of enforcing it. So it's a combination of both. I think an interesting observation that I've noticed when reading different articles about COVID-19 is often if they're talking about a country which might not have data protection laws in place or strict regulations when it comes to different sectorial laws for for the regulation and, and processing of personal data, they often start the sentence by saying, oh, they would want to do this, but they can't. So in the countries where there is data protection laws, they'd say we, they would want to do this, but they can't because there are strict data protection laws in place. And in countries where those laws are not in place, then it's often, oh, it's fine. They're going to go ahead with the different measures being proposed and that, that might put them at an advantage to, to others. And I think seeing how that narrative is being promoted in terms of seeing data protection or the protection of fundamental rights as a barrier is highly problematic. And as Eden was saying, it's not enough to say that countries need to respect their human rights obligations. We need to start breaking it down, what it means in terms of when those protections are implemented, how is that experienced by an individual? It means that there's you know, rules in terms of how their data is going to be used right now, but also in the future, ensuring that it's deleted, which is one of the big things with, with this crisis as well, is going to be to ensure that all of the measures that are being proposed are actually terminated when they no longer have a legal basis to exist. Um, and who is going to be responsible for that? Who's going to be responsible for checking that all of these apps start operating, that the data that they stored is deleted, and that has to be done for all of the measures that will be deployed, because if not, the risk will be that they're now setting the foundation for new systems in the future. And that point that Alex makes about 
then some of the measures not even being particularly high tech is actually really important because that might be to depending on your context actually far more important to your life than some of these high tech solutions that have received a lot of media attention so it's very very uh, tempting for media to focus on these kind of high-tech solutions like telco location tracking but actually if you're somebody who's experiencing uh, some of these low-tech solutions they might be far more intrusive and far more important to you so like alex said we've seen people's actual names being posted online in argentina and some seven other countries so for example in montenegro the authorities publish people's actual names on a publicly accessible website, then leading to those people's abuse. In other countries, we've seen, for example, hand stamping, and then just public authorities, then also just monitoring people's locations, as well as people who are essentially acting as informants, so neighbors telling authorities as to whether or not someone's been quarantined. And while these things might not receive as much media attention, they are actually vitally important for people. And maybe just to add another actor um, to, to the mix, I didn't um, mention a few earlier on, but in a lot of countries, we might see other actors step up, like the development or humanitarian organizations, because often they're the ones to be picking up some of the shortcomings of governments to be able to provide access to things like healthcare. And I think that's going to be something as different regions that have thankfully so far been less impacted by the spread of the coronavirus. Um, once that starts to impact them, and I'm talking about large parts of sub-Saharan Africa or parts of Southeast Asia, we're going to see these actors step in and play that role that the government should be playing. And so it'll be important to be working with them as PI and others have done in the past and, and to raise exactly the same questions we're raising with governments is to be asking what data they're going to be collecting for what purpose, who's going to be responsible for it, and how is it actually addressing the, the spread of the virus itself. Health data is really one of the most highly prized and sensitive data sets by big tech companies. And we've seen in the past big tech companies who are supposed to work with public health data gaining access unlawfully to personal details of millions of people. So it's a real threat there. And we're also concerned about how this technology might be used to inform their own learning systems. So if you're, for example, a big tech company and you've all of a sudden got contracts in do dozens of countries where you're then using this data and ability to upgrade your own product, you can then market that to governments who are then going to have to buy your tech and public money into a surveillance company because you've developed that expertise and you've trained your systems. You've just defined essentially the entire business model of the entire sector of artificial intelligence companies. And uh, they're essentially going to be using this crisis to build their dominance. That's very helpful and worrying. Thank you, Eden. So to draw this element of the podcast to a close, can you just each explain to us what we're doing to make sure we can keep note of this key moment in global history, essentially, and to make sure that we're, we're well positioned to engage and take action going forward. Yes, yeah, so Privacy International, we're kind of privileged to be able to work with a global network of activists. So from countries all over the world, including Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, and really the measures we're seeing might be quite similar in some respects, but depending on their context, they're all different. Uh, and being able to understand 
what those measures are, how they're affecting people, and some of the problems they bring is really important to be able to hold these measures to account and to essentially learn what's going to be effective and what's going to be a threat to privacy. So together, we're working to record these examples. We're then providing summaries of what these measures are and then providing explanations to try and help the public, researchers, activists, policymakers understand what some of these measures are and to then subsequently be able to hold them to account. And that's available on our website at privacyinternational.org. We're also working with our international network of partners to see how to integrate some of the proposals within their programmatic work. So we'll be working with them to, in the short term, understand how some of the measures are being deployed, but also understanding what are the long-term implications. As we mentioned earlier, we're concerned that some of the measures will become a foundation for further systems to be deployed and to be maintained in the long term. And so we're going to be focusing on that as well to have more of a, of a long-term strategy to tackle any of the outcomes of the results results following the the pandemic as well. So, I mean, look, uh, ultimately, a lot of these solutions might be temporarily effective that, you know, we'll have to figure that out as time progresses. But ultimately, we shouldn't be put in a position where we're relying on what are essentially the tools of counterterrorism to fight a public health crisis. We should be investing in public services, in the health sector to make sure that when crises like these come around, because we know they are on the horizon, we're able to respond to it through services and through the public sector in ways that respect people's rights so that we're not left relying on surveillance companies or surveillance tools and that we can make sure that a crisis like this essentially doesn't happen again. I think we'd argue that this false dichotomy between privacy on one hand and responding effectively to the crisis on the other. I mean, these are tensions that we are continuously having to address in our work. And we've been exploring, you know, the use of data and technology, for example, in the deployment of digital welfare and healthcare systems. And so for us, it really comes down to understanding what are the responsible uses of data and technology that can really help because there can be tech solutions to, to what we're facing, but that we don't adopt some of the bad tech solutions that we've seen being rolled out over and over again to solve uh, problems that actually didn't need a tech fix or not only a tech fix. One of the things that we've been looking at with some of our partners as well is how people and communities that are already marginalized because of existing systems that they're having to interact with, be it digital ID systems or immigration enforcement systems, are being disproportionately impacted by some of the measures being proposed. One of the key things to remember is that the very best intentions can result in considerable harm. And unfortunately, as we've seen over and over, risks and benefits are unequally distributed. And so some of the concerns that we've seen that is worth flagging at at this stage is the way, for example, the the migrant community um, has been impacted by, by some of the measures. And I wanted to flag two examples. The first one is when it comes to access to healthcare. In many countries, there already exist disciplinary measures when it comes to excluding on the basis of immigration status. These are issues that have been flagged by migrant organizations across the world with the fear that migrants that might be sick or might be getting symptoms might not seek healthcare for fear of coming forward and being deported. That has been a case uh, in a pre-COVID-19 settings, but also worries possibly around costs. We've seen some governments taking positive steps 
for example, in Ireland, where they've already announced um, that they would be treated everyone equally and provide uh, absolute privacy and confidentiality to migrants coming forward for support, as well as Portugal regularizing the status of thousands of people who had pending um, immigration statuses and in terms of accessing universal healthcare as a result of being able to regularize their status. So these are some of the the positive measures. A concerning one that emerged from the European Union was the European Commission deciding to draft a proposal to amend its 2020 budget, which among other measures provides assistance to Greece in the context of COVID-19 outbreak. And unfortunately, instead of using this opportunity to ensure that migrants are safe and can access healthcare, what we're seeing is those funds then being used to further enhance existing control and surveillance over them. And these are issues that, that we have to keep an eye out because as I was saying earlier, marginalized communities are already negatively impacted and some of the measures being proposed will further hinder their ability to access not only healthcare, but to access all of their fundamental rights. All these issues you're raising deserve essentially a podcast of their own. And fortunately, that's actually something we are going to do. The, the purpose of this specific podcast we're doing is to provide a almost an umbrella under which uh, we can discuss a number of the issues raised today in greater detail. And we'll be doing so in a subset of many podcasts on these topics that you will be able to find alongside this podcast in the future. So thank you for that. And we're also going to be talking about in those mini podcasts, some of the work that we've been doing, looking at the health apps and the technology, particularly around Bluetooth being used in some of the more privacy preserving apps that are out there and asking, what does that actually mean? So do come back to our site or to the platform you're using for getting access to this podcast to see the other podcasts we have planned. Thank you both. Let's take a break and then we'll come back to In the News. So normally at this point of the podcast, we're looking to other news stories. Unfortunately, uh, when we asked around what kind of news stories people were paying most attention to, everything had to do with surprise, surprise, the virus and the global response to it. We searched really hard to find some other stories that we were asked to comment on or that are relating to the work that we're doing that isn't specifically related to COVID-19. And one of the most interesting ones is, well, Zoom, the company that provides much of the world's conferencing telecommunications systems today in the post-COVID-19 environment, even though we're not talking about the virus. Zoom is being relied on by governments. There was a, uh, a photo just last week of um, the UK cabinet meeting over Zoom. It's being used in schools or the replacement of schools. It's being used in the medical profession. It's being used everywhere. It's being used for drinking parties, for crying out loud. And what's most interesting about the news stories around Zoom is that in the first two weeks, it was all about how this billion dollar company has really risen to the moment. 
And now what we're finally seeing is that Zoom is a bit of a mess when it comes to security and privacy. And so there's been a lot of news coverage recently about studies showing how insecure Zoom actually is or how Zoom doesn't live up to the the claims of its proponents about how secure it could be. But we already saw some of these stories last year when, for instance, every Mac user across the planet had to have a secret update issued onto their computer to, to plug a very large hole that was left behind by Zoom. And so it was clear that this billion dollar company had not been paying attention to security and privacy issues. And so one would have hoped that since that breach last year that they would have cleaned up their act and unfortunately they hadn't. And so relatively recently the CEO of Zoom had to announce that they're going to stop all feature development so they can go back and do all the security and privacy developments they need to undertake to essentially make Zoom safe enough for schools and for governments to communicate and for the health sector to share records and have conversations. It's a bit of a reckoning for Zoom, but it's also hopefully a reckoning for the entire Silicon Valley environment where for them, it was always like the rush to get the product at the door and to build the things that they need to build after the fact. Yeah, and particularly, I think in some cases, it's tempting to say that Zoom is essentially prioritizing usability in terms of privacy. So because it needs to make sure that there's no lag, that it's easy enough to use. It has to integrate a few of these features and to sacrifice privacy, essentially. But that would be far too kind. So, for, for example, there's a story in The Intercept about how the claim that Zoom was end-to-end encrypted was essentially rubbish. And this goes back to the point that we're trying to raise in the first half of this podcast, which is whatever systems we use, at a a moment of crisis or in our daily lives to respond to a moment of crisis, whether it's sharing drinks with somebody or uh, schools teaching using Zoom or any other type of service, or if it's doctors and other health professionals sharing data, you shouldn't have to ask, is the infrastructure I'm using trustworthy? Why should schools have to wonder, is Zoom paying attention to these communications? In reality, these, whether it's schools or it's health professionals, again, they shouldn't have to worry. And that's why we need end-to-end encryption and other types of tools and basic security measures to make sure that we don't have to worry about these things. And if you were, for example, Gus, speaking to your mum or putting out um podcast on COVID-19 and surveillance, would you still use them or would you recommend something else? I don't get into the business of recommending products because they all kind of suck. And uh, most of them have, as uh, as you've rightly identified, tried to prioritize usability over anything else. But uh, there are more promising apps out there that, that people can use that have been audited by third parties that do open source, which is to, to publish the code that is actually running so we can all see whether or not there's any intentional vulnerabilities, but also unintentional vulnerabilities. But instead, we keep on falling back upon the, the, the ones that are most closed, the ones that aren't designed to be used for these types of environments. Another interesting story was from L. L had been writing about the rise of DNA testing in the beauty sector on the premise that DNA-driven skincare services could somehow unwrap your genetic code and give you better and quicker results. 
And there was an interesting case study that they included in their article that quoted a colleague of ours, but this wasn't about um, our colleague, where an individual said that she had laid out 900 pounds or about $1,400 on DNA-based products. And while they did help her a little, she found that when instead she went to see a dermatologist for a fraction of that cost, that ended up helping more. It's interesting that as much as we don't want to be talking about COVID-19 within the, the news section of this podcast, this does come back to the whole tech solutionism kind of issue, which is, oh, well, look, skincare is something that can be solved by getting more data on people and personalizing treatment. Um, yes, or it could be dealt with through the way that we've been dealing with these issues throughout time, which is having specialists who are trained specialists who can actually help people. So there was also a story, I don't know if anyone saw, about fertility tracking apps and how its developer was essentially saying that they could use that as a data source for predicting the spread of COVID-19 also. And in addition, we've also seen apps, for example, the smart thermometers so apparently those are a thing also and this developer was also arguing that they could then sell that well give that data to government authorities and third parties to track the spread also so essentially across many different sectors we're seeing app developers try and utilize their data for this purpose Thanks for listening. Get involved with us on this issue by going to our website or specifically using our privacy-friendly URL shortener by going to https colon forward slash forward slash pvcy.org slash covid19. That is pvcy.org slash covid19. All one word. You can also sign up to our COVID-19 mailing list by going to action.privacyinternational.org and signing up to our various channels of mailing lists, including one specifically on COVID-19. You can also like and subscribe to this podcast on the platform of your choice. The music is courtesy of Sepia. And the podcast is produced by Max Burnell for Privacy International.